Uh, Y'all can hear me. Okay. And looks like Lisa's recording it now. Yes, we can hear it, Doug. Thank you, sir. Um, so usually when we're talking about resistant hypertension, we are talking about workup of secondary causes, et cetera, and yada, yada, yada. And that is not this talk. Um, we'll get to what this talk is about. Uh, but we will begin with a case presentation. And um, <clears throat> this case uh, is somewhat distant in my memory. So I had to reconstruct it as best I could. Uh, I want to keep it distant in my memory too. So um, I will leave it at that. So this is a woman who, uh, uh, you know, I, I didn't have a regular clinic. She uh, called me up and insisted that she needed to see me. And so she came into my clinic over at um, Safter Three Boy Tower. So it was in, um, or One Boy Tower. So it was over there in um, medical specialty clinic. She had been hypertensive for many years. She checked her blood pressure three times a day. They'd been in the systolics of 170 to 200. Her diastolics were 100 to 110. Her pulse was 80 to 100. Uh, so she would check them uh, three times a day. And if her blood pressures were greater than 200, she would then recheck them. And if they went higher, and they always went higher when it was already 200, she would go to her local emergency room and she had been in her local emergency room many, many times. And usually they would give her a whopping dose of hydralazine and send her out again. She was very anxious. Her husband was there. He was quiet, he was supportive, he was henpecked. Um, her blood pressure was something on the order of 195 over 105, similar in both arms. There was no radial femoral delay. Uh, she did have signs in her eyes of um, end organ damage from hypertension. As I remember, there was a carotid brewery on one side or the other. On the other hand, there was no Osler sign. Um, for uh, those who have uh, forgotten or who are a younger person, Osler sign is when you pump up a blood pressure cuff, you could still feel their radial artery. That means that their arteries are big and thick and they are gonna have water hammer pulses. Her heart was a regular rate and rhythm. She had an S4. There were no breweries that I could hear. There was no pedal edema. All in all, about what I would expect for somebody with uncontrolled hypertension. She brought in a big stack of papers, a big, big stack of papers. That's the places she had been to. University of Chicago, Northwestern, Wash U, Indiana University, Mayo Clinic, and I was supposed to fix her problem. And she could come in to see you or her sister could. And so, um, yeah. Um, like a deer in the headlights, you can't run. Uh, you got to just deal with it. So uh, you go through the big stack of papers. She'd had uh, many workups for secondary hypertension. Uh, most of her renin-aldo renin values were less than 20. They did one at the University of Chicago. It was a big bit high. So they did a CT, and the CT suggested an enlarged adrenal gland. 
and they didn't do any, um, they uh, decided to just go ahead and take that adrenal gland out. And she said it showed a nodule. Uh, the reason that there is an asterisk there is that was the, uh, the op report was, um, the, the path report was not in the big stack of papers. And so uh, I called, uh, so we sent a release of information off to uh, University of Chicago and they sent back a big stack of papers and there was no uh, path report in it. And I eventually ended up begging for it and they sent it to me and there was no, not, it was a normal adrenal gland. She's had uh, renal ultrasounds, MRAs, CTs. Uh, there's been no evidence of renal artery stenosis. Um, she's had plasma-free metanephrines done. Her norm metanephrines, as I remember, were a little bit elevated above the upper limit of normal. Um, sometimes her urine catechols were at the upper limit of normal. She'd had MIBGs done. This is back when I used to do MIBGs. Contrast MRI, CT, PET scans, they generally were negative, although in later years, there was an adrenal gland that was missing. Um, there was a brainstem MRA that showed a mildly ectatic pica. And at this point, those of you who are younger doctors are probably going, what the heck is he talking about? Um, and for this, I will, uh, this is not the subject of the talk, but there was a uh, hypothesized cause of hypertension back years ago that I gave a talk on years ago uh, that was referred to as dorsal root entry zone compression phenomenon hypertension, where the, an ectatic pica pressed against the uh, dorsal root entry zone of the medulla uh, and activated the uh, spinal trigeminal tract and raised blood pressure. Uh, it was very popular. There was a neurosurgeon at uh, Temple University who um, liked to do uh, decompression surgeries for this and claimed to have a fantastic rate uh, of success. Um, he would operate on you if you were breathing and uh, he did not want to operate on her. At least that's what one of the notes said. So uh, he declined to evaluate her. Um, years later, um, a number of folks, including Frank Abood, went to a conference to decide whether they could do a uh, randomized controlled trial. And the problem with that whole um, diagnosis of hypertension is that nobody really knew how to diagnose it. And so uh, yeah, I haven't heard much about it recently, but even that was evaluated on this per on this woman. She was on no medicines. Uh, every medicine that she was tried on made her sick. And this is as best I remember. She got dyspneic with calcium channel blockers, zoned out with metoprolol, dried out with hydrochlorothiazide and furosemide. Uh, got fatigued with doxazosin and got puffy with spironolactone. Uh, mostly it was just whenever they, they put her on something, she felt tired. <clears throat> so this is uh, resistant in my title was in quotation marks because this is not about resistant hypertension 
as you know it. This is to uh, review the literature such as it is concerning the treatment such as it is of hypertension occurring with multiple drug intolerances. And this is an unco somewhat uncommon thing, but these uh, patients filter to tertiary care facilities uh, and um, the best way to deal with them is like a fluoride leak in your lab, a strong set of good set of running shoes. But unfortunately, you can't do that. And if you are dealing with one of these, it is, it is good to know what is out there. Um, and I will talk about what little is out there. I will say this is a very challenging set of patients. Um, I don't expect you to remember the ICD-10 code, but there, you should remember there is an ICD-10 code. And if you type in multiple, uh, multiple medication intolerances, this ICD-10 code pops up and uh, it is worth, if you have this, it will make, give you a high complexity. Um, Resistant hypertension, interestingly, has no ICD-10 code, though it did have an ICD-9 code. There is a clinical entity of people who take all of their medicines at high doses. They fill their medicines and you still can't control their blood pressure. That is refractory hypertension. And it is a clinical entity that has never had an ICD-9 or ICD-10 code. And I have seen more than one. So if you're dealing with refractory hypertension, this is something of an aside, but it includes these folks who have, um, who have multiple drug intolerances. Those patients can be dichotomized into those who are anxious about their blood pressure and those who are kind of laid back about it. And for those who are kind of laid back about it, um, what will happen is other physicians will try to aggressively treat the hypertension and the patient will get worse symptoms and then will go off their medicines and things will repeat. I have followed one of these patients for a long time and all I could do is try and take the blood pressure off until bad things happened. And if you are dealing with this, bad things are going to happen. And uh, my patient, I can only see by uh, this particular patient, other patient I'm thinking about, I can only see by um, telemedicine anymore because he had a cerebellar stroke and can't get out of bed without getting dizzy. And if he's in bed, his blood pressure's high. Uh, and he's, I still see him and there's just thing, bad things are going to happen with uncontrolled hypertension. And refractory hypertension is also hard to treat. And when bad things are happening, all I can say is refer you to um, the house of God and the patient is the one with the disease. If they are anxious about their meta hypertension and have multiple drug intolerances and they're sitting in your clinic, I feel your pain, don't refer them to me. But there is something you can do. There is a place you can go, that a, a paper you can go to that did not exist when I saw the primary patient I'm talking about a couple decades ago. Whoa. So first question is, who are these people? And the second question is, how can I help them? So in terms of who these people are, um, from a good journal, not very recent, um, 
these are folks who um, were seen at the Sheffield Hypertension Clinic in England, and they did a chart review in this paper. Group one was all patients seen over the course of a single year who had documented intolerances to two or more antihypertensive medicines. And the control group, for the control group, they searched forward alphabetically from in each index patient to the next patient they could find in their clinic list who had no documented intolerances on their list, who was in the same decade of age and the same sex as the index patient. And then they uh, looked at the blood pressures, the number of antihypertensive drugs, and they uh, obtained psychiatric dose uh, diagnoses from the record, and you can see where this is going. Um, they defined intolerance as stopping a drug to adverse event effect, unless the adverse effect was lack of efficacy. Uh, they had, they knew what the patients were taking their medicines based on pharmacy records, at least they were filling them. And they had two masked assessors who determined uh, if the drug was stopped due to an adverse effect, not due to lack of efficacy. Um, my observation on this is that the British are nicer than Americans are because they mask their assessors and we blind them. Um, symptomatic intolerance was classified um, as whether it was specific to the drug or not. So it, they would, they would uh, give you three points uh, for a drug intolerance if you had something like an ACE inhibitor cough, something that we always see. Uh, two points if it was possibly due to the drug. There's a lot of reasons for fatigue. Um, beta blockers can cause fatigue, but is the fatigue due to the beta blocker? That got you two points. One, if you had probably not, the example they give is lethargy due to nifedipine, and zero as likely not due to the drug. For instance, I put you on a loop diuretic and you got edema, although that said, such a thing as diuretic-induced edema does exist. Um, and then they would average the score of all your drug intolerances, and if it was zero to 1.5, they said you had nonspecific adverse effects, and two to three said that you had specific adverse effects, and then there's a gray zone in the middle. They uh, divided their patients up into those who had drug-specific uh, problems and non-drug specific side effects. They then went further and took all, all the patients in their study sent questionnaires and those questionnaires focused on alcohol consumptions, medications they were taking, panic disorder, anxiety, and depression. <clears throat> they had 138 subjects who had greater than two episodes of drug intolerance and in fact, the average was something on the order of four to five episodes of drug intolerance in those folks who had multiple episodes of drug intolerance. The 138 subjects that they had, some of them still had drug intolerances. These were more commonly drug specific, but once they actually dug through uh, the records and the questionnaires, they found more in their control group. It was noted that um, 66% roughly of people with multiple drug intolerances were women as versus 50% of the population of this clinic as a whole was female. And they also mentioned an association with older age. 
of those 276 subjects, they got 233 analyzable questionnaires, which I found to be an extraordinarily high return rate for a questionnaire. Um, I don't think we would get that in our population. Uh, they uh, had 532 symptomatic episodes of which 248 were nonspecific and 284 were drug specific. Um, and in those with nonspecific tolerance, the average blood pressure was higher. This first one should be systolic. The P as equal to 0 0.003 is the diastolic. So they had significantly higher blood pressures for those with the nonspecific uh, intolerance compared to both those with drug-specific intolerances and true, a true control group who had no drug, drug intolerances. Uh, there was a significant association between the number of episodes of nonspecific intolerance and panic attacks and depression, but not with anxiety, a generalized anxiety disorder uh, and not with panic, a generalized panic disorder. So panic attacks and depression actually are associated with uh, multiple drug intolerance to non with nonspecific symptoms, which uh, does uh, raise the question of um, whether you're, if you identify somebody with panic disorder or depression who comes into your clinic, uh, how, how are you going to introduce them to the concept that there may be a psychiatric component to their problem? Uh, because these folks uh, go from clinic to clinic looking for something that is non-psychiatric. Um, this is a paper. In fact, this is the paper that truly deals with a way to handle this uh, and unfortunately, um, it's not a great paper. And uh, the reason I said that this is an anecdote-driven approach is this is what you got. And in this case, anecdote, the multiple of an anecdote is, is data. So um, this is, uh, I think it used to be called St. Bart's. Now they may call it Bart's Clinic, Hypertension Clinic. Also uh, in the Green Island, not the Green Island, in Great Britain, 55 subjects referred uh, for hypertension who had multiple drug intolerances. And we'll get to how they got there. And they define this as intolerance to three different classes of antihypertensive medicines. Um, they did not classify it as specific or nonspecific. It's just that um, you had a problem with the medicine. Um, and uh, to get to those 55 subjects, I will mention this again later, uh, you had to have evidence of hypertension on ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. They said 135 over 85 got you there. That sounds like pretty good control of blood pressure to me, but there you are. Uh, you had to have three clinic visits with complete blood pressure information at each visit and medication uh, information at each visit. And you had to have continued use of home blood pressure monitoring is how you should uh, end that sentence. And um, the uh, steps that they had after they identified somebody are first, they went through fractional tablet dosing, and I'll get to that. 
And then if that didn't work, they would go to liquid formulations and I'll get to that. And finally, uh, their third step was transdermal formulations. And their fourth step was unlicensed tab tablet medications. Or I shouldn't say unlicensed. In, in our case, we would call it use of medicines outside their FDA approved indication. After that, they uh, went to um, device-based therapies uh, such as renal denervation. So um, I have abstracted their ta uh, their 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 um, this article is well protected behind a paywall, and it's hard to get um, the pictures out. So or the or the um, tables out. So I have abstracted their tables. The medicines that they particularly mention are medicines where the smallest available dose size is a very small fraction of the maximal daily dose. So for instance, lisinopril can, is used sometimes up to 80 milligrams a day. So you're talking about something that's 1 30th of that or so uh, for, for that dose of lisinopril. Candesartan, the maximum dose is 32 milligrams. That was one of the thing ways I liked candesartan. It was available in all sorts of different dosing uh, dose sizes. Uh, Ramapril, I think the maximum is like 20 or something. Um, I have never seen, that's verapamil, I misspelled it. I'm on service. Uh, I've never seen a 40 milligram verapamil pill, so I'm not sure that that's available in the United States. Uh, indapamide's maximum dose, 20 or something. You can get indapamide at two and a half. Bisoprolol at 1.25 milligrams, there's an MG there. And apparently in England, there is a 0.025 milligram clonidine pill. I can't say I've ever seen that. But so those are the fractional tablet forms they mention. Uh, does anybody have any other knowledge of really tiny pills? If it's um, any of these um, medications come in capsule form that might be, you know, broken and administered sublingual? Uh, I'm going to get there in a okay. second. Sorry. Uh, to uh, my old nemesis, um, but not that I know of. And uh, I did ask if Shelly could be on. Uh, and so, yes, I see that she is on. So I'm particularly gonna ask her for the next one. So I don't know about, uh, many of these, I suspect you could fracture into rough halves, although uh, you're gonna end up with a lot of dust with these really tiny pills. After that, they went to liquid formulations. And the liquid formulation that I have used in the past is nifedipine. So remember that nifedipine is liquid at room temperature. Um, so back when I was a idiot resident, along with a lot of other idiot residents, one of our favorite tricks when you had somebody come in with hypertensive emergency was to uh, drop a, was to uh, break open a tablet, a capsule of nifedipine and put it under their tongue. 
And it was a fantastic drug, man. It would drop their pressure like you wouldn't believe. And then they'd stroke. Uh, and there was a paper that came out, I don't know, 92, 93, demonstrating the damage that we did. And so I got to say that using nifedipine as a liquid, I, I've been there and done that. Maybe if you were to uh, have a, a pharmacy uh, create it and give it using like a one milliliter syringe so you could give a tenth of a milliliter, I'd, I'd, nifedipine worries me. They also have available ramipril, losartan, verapamil, furosemide, spironolactone, and atenolol. So, Michelle, do you, I, I know that you were warned that I was going to ask you this question. What do we have for liquid medicines? Yeah, so I, I did look into it, and I found so three branded liquids, so amlodipine, enalapril, and lisinopril are available by manufacturers. <laughs> Are you, are you able to hear me fine? Yes, I am hearing you. So you, again, amlodipine. Amlodipine, enalapril, and lisinopril. Okay. But from the manufacturer, they're about, they're over $500 for about five milligrams a day. So very, Ooh, yeah. that's going to be kind of hard to get past a, uh, uh, your um, um, pre, pre-authorization, isn't it? Yes, I think, um, I mean, there are a lot of, this article that I have, it has all of the instructions for compounding. So I think pharmacists do compound these when requested. Um, but I don't know, I haven't gotten an exact price quote for kind of what our pharmacy would dispense a, a compounded antihypertensive for, but there's still some hoops to jump through, you know, insurances yeah. have to be. But that, that may be the way to go would be if we needed to do this would be to compound. try to call you and get it compounded for us. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Are all three that expensive or just? All three are. The only affordable one that I found that's made from the manufacturer is Furosemite. And that's super cheap. It's like um, $6 for 240 milligrams, so about eight milligrams a day. Um, the transdermal ones they mention is a clonidine patch, which oddly enough, in Britain appears to be available, but not indicated by their FDA equivalent for hypertension. I'm not exactly sure what else you would use a clonidine patch for, but they they kind of in this paper go around to quite, quite a bit about this. Um, they use nitroglycerin patches too. And I've heard of people using nitroglycerin pills uh, when nothing else works. Uh, I have, I may have seen some nitroglycerin patches back in the old days of the net fits. Um, and finally, uh, when their backs against the wall, they do prescribe to Dalafil, uh, as an antihypertensive. So they looked through, uh, 786 patients referred to their blood pressure center, which I, spelled in the British way. They identified 79 with multiple drug intolerant hypertension, again, intolerant of three or more classes. Of those 79, they were missing some data, so only 55 satisfied those inclusion criteria that I've already documented before. And of those 55, at the end of 12 months, they only had 41 available um, for analysis. 
Once again, uh, looking at their demographics, the MDI, uh, multiple drug intolerant hypertension patients, were more likely to be female and they were more likely to be older. And in the end, uh, these are the way things were prescribed. And you will notice that 70 plus 40 plus 16 adds up to more than 100%. So somewhere on more than one of these um, methods. But most of them ended up being prescribed fractional tablet medicines. And certainly that is something that uh, is a trick that we know in the United States and uh, has been used before by more than one member of this division. Um, so the most common fractional tablet medicines they uh, used were calcium channel blockers, followed by ARBs, followed by spironolactone, followed by central alpha agents. Um, and then the alpha blocker. And again, the central alpha agent they used was this tiny, tiny dose of, um, of the clonidine, which I don't think we have here. 40% ended up being prescribed liquid formulations of which 91% were apparently uh, liquid nifedipine. Um, the smallest number were prescribed uh, transdermal of which uh, of 11% of everybody was put on a clonidine patch. But the, their, their descriptions here are not um, parallel. Um, and in the end, 11%, uh, not transdermal, excuse me, that's not right. 11% were put on uh, oral tadalafil. And at the end of 12 months, their blood pressures uh, in clinic were reduced by 17 systolic and by nine diastolic using this regimen, which uh, for my patient would not be much, but you know, that's kind of average. Some were reduced by more, some by less. And their home blood pressure was reduced by 11 by systolic and 12 by diastolic. Um, and the uh, p-values from beginning to end were significant for both. And in the end, 9% per were referred for device-based treatment. And um, I don't think we, we don't have uh, ren renal, renal denervation available in the United States uh, off outside of trials. The next case, the next one paper in the literature is a case report, it's more recent, which supports the previously mentioned paper and gets in the way of you finding it if you remember this in the future. And like I need to find that paper, it makes it harder to find the paper. The next one is a case series that also makes it harder to find the paper. And again, is a case series of patients who came in after the other paper was published, like five and it draws no conclusion, it's just like, this is one, this is two, this is three, this is four, see it works. And then there is this paper, which covers multiple drug intolerance in a general sense and is not specific for hypertension. And that is the literature. Oh, there's a single case study that which refers to the trial, uh, to, to that main paper by the Lobo group. <clears throat> 
And all of those make it harder to find the original paper. Um, so um, this isn't a very big topic, but when one of these folks walks into your general nephrology clinic, this is in fact a paper you wanna have. It's not a great paper, but it's one you wanna have in the back of your mind, knowing it's there. So you can say, okay, this is how we're gonna handle this. I would point out that these are challenging papers. They tend to get filtered to tertiary care centers. And then sometimes they travel from one tertiary care facility to another. Uh, and there is this very abbreviated literature about how to use this. Step one, use low, lots of low doses, bring them back to clinic fairly frequently. If those lots of low doses don't work, use liquid formulations. Again, they don't have the binders and excipients that are in the tablets that may be the reason why your patient's not tolerating the drug. You can go to uh, clonidine or nitroglycerin uh, transdermal, and you could use a PDE, a long-acting PDE-5. That's what I wanted to talk to you about. Are there any questions? I don't know if I should be reading through, between the lines, Doug, but uh, are you trying to say that uh, the fractional doses uh, really work as a placebo effect? Uh, no. Because those patients have a lot of anxiety and- uh, No, I would say that um, a lot of those folks who have non-specific, excuse me, who have drug-specific intolerances, I'm married to one, by the way, who has multiple drug-specific intolerances, drove her PCP crazy. Um, those folks frequently are people who are very sensitive to antihypertensives. And so putting them on uh, multiple on really low doses frequently works because the reason that they don't tolerate drugs is because they work too well. Um, there are other patients who you try and you try and you try and you detect anxiety. And those folks tend to have anxiety or depression that they are interpreting their symptoms of anxiety about starting a new medicine as, as a side effect of the medicine itself. And how do you get around that? Uh, I'm going to say from my personal experience that telling a patient that you would like to send them to a psychiatrist will drive them from your office and they will not see you again in these cases. Um, you may be needing to bite the bullet and be willing to prescribe yourself their anti-anxiety medicines so that you can get them on an antihypertensive regimen that works for them using all these other tricks. Doug, um... Did that paper, either of those papers, or I think that last one specifically, did it comment on the number of patients that had further intolerances to the fractional tablet liquid formulation, et cetera? No, they didn't. But I think you can infer that the fractional tablet worked pretty well because 70% of folks ended up on it and only 11% are... 20% had gone on to the um, other two arms because theoretically it was, you know, um, it's, a, it's a stepwise thing. So you try the fractional first. So 70%, so 40 plus 16, something around 
40% of the folks move from the fractional drug dosing onto liquid dosing. So then something more than something more than half, all you all they needed was fractional tablet dosing. You can infer that, but it doesn't necessarily say that. I wonder if you can translate this regimen to orthostatic uh, hypertension patients. Orthostatic um, hypertension, sorry. I don't know. I think that's a separate set of very challenging patients. But it's the same issue to a certain yep. degree. I mean, it's yep. not really the same, but uh, you have the same problems. You have uh, blood pressure drops with the regular doses of uh, yes, Yeah, and you are right. Maybe you could get by with a microdoses. I will say that one of my better, better tricks, not a great trick, fourth static hypotension is putting them on clonidine patches and seeing if that helps along with all the other tricks. Thank you. I, I, um, I had another uh, comment or I want to, I guess, get your experience, further experience. So I'm kind of disheartened, I guess, to hear that referring patients to psychiatrists this kind of issue really has a negative reaction. Um, you know, um, it's a little bit, it's a bummer because I think actually um, it, when I worked at that hypertension center before, we actually had a pretty big like bevy of patients. We worked with like a psychologist that did cognitive behavioral therapy for patients with a lot of anxiety that we thought was driving their hypertension. And it actually really was helpful. Um, um, but I, I guess I just want to confirm. So that's a pretty consistent I, reaction you've, I, heard you've had. Yeah, I've not seen a whole lot of these patients, but I've lost more than one when I've mentioned psychiatry. Uh, and that's what happened to this first patient I talked to you, told you about from 20 years ago. After I'd worked and worked and worked, I was like, how about a psychiatrist? Would that help? And she, she and her husband stormed out of the office. So um, the... Um, it might be best, actually, if you can identify a strong component of anxiety, to bring that to bring in those professionals early rather than late. To John's question, it also depends on how you frame uh, that to the patient. So, what I tell them when when I refer them to psychiatrists, psychologists, is that they have a hormonal imbalance in the brain, and that's a component to their blood pressure, and that makes it more palatable, I guess. Hey Doug, what yeah. about um, what about deep breathing? Because I presented this like years ago in one of the renal grand rounds, like you know, like deep breathing. Because there's literature on that. Yes, and I, I, I am not sure where that would fit in with this, but uh, um, that's not something I missed that talk when you gave it. So I, that would be something else you could try. This is like the deep the biofeedback. Yeah. Like it's like five or six breaths a minute thing. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Like, you know, and it's, I guess, helps with like uh, carotid sensitization and uh, yeah. I, uh, yeah. I have to say, uh, uh, I do that when I go to my doctor uh, in, in order to lower my blood pressure with each visit. So she doesn't try <laughs> to put me on more antihypertensive medicines. <laughs> I also do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
there's actually for younger people there's actually a lot of apps now that kind of can train without having to get referred that can help people learn that skill um yeah i mean my my own thing exactly like you said moni is like um just to explain that, you know, yes, anxiety normally raises people's blood pressure, but that's not the blood pressure change that we really worry about. And so I tell them people, you're scaring yourself when you test your blood pressure when you're stressed. And I really try and train them to not do it, to only do it when they're super calm. But that's like a drop in the ocean to the patient you described. And yeah, the, I don't think I think Ben's on vacation. But I know Ben has a patient that sounds exactly like the patient ben, you're uh, describing. I mentioned to Ben that I was giving this talk, and he's like, "Oh, I think that might be useful." Um, yeah, I really appreciate this. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Uh, I think we're going to have a staff meeting after that. This is that right, Chao Long? Yes. Are we starting right now? Uh, well, let's uh, break for a couple of minutes. Uh, okay. For the non-physician uh, faculty to to lock off, and then uh, someone wants me to run for some kind. Eero. Of... All right. So two minutes. Let's yep. stay on the same link, and then we would uh, start okay. start meeting. Dr. Summers, I got access to the VA, so I can go see that patient in the ICU. Uh, okay, so I saw the other patient, um, the dialysis patient. I wrote his notes, so I'll I'll meet you over there after the meet after the uh, staff meeting. Okay, Sounds I was hope I was hoping to use use you as an excuse to miss staff meeting, but I guess I can't now. <laughs> okay, thanks so much. Yep. While we're on, I just thought, is anybody available to staff a biopsy with um, one of our fellows, Ahmed, tomorrow at 9 a.m.? I was scheduled to do it. I sent an email around, and I'm not able to because I have an urgent um, visit for my daughter, a medical visit for a possible wrist fracture. So I don't know if anybody's available. I, unfortunately, am in doing uh, VA rounds at that time. Yeah, Ero won't be there, but Ahmed um, observed us do one today. I staffed one today with both of them. Okay. He's going to be need, you know, 